0: Hello, and welcome to the EG Property Podcast with me, EG editor Sam McClary. Now, if there's one thing I know, it's that everyone who works in real estate, whether you're a consultant, investor, developer, or even a journalist, wants to know what are occupiers thinking? That has never been more important than it is today, as headlines around the world speculate on the death of the office, assuming that millions of workers will continue to work mostly at home after a year of lockdown. Now, it's inevitable that businesses will be reassessing their strategies post-Covid, and that probably will include a good look at their real estate footprint and how their staff can work most productively. But will it mean a mass downsizing of workspace? Ardventure? Probably not. Or at least that's what Knight Frank's Lee Elliott discovers in his latest Your Space report. He spoke with 400-plus global occupiers to get their insight, and speaks to me today to share them. With you.
1: Joining me today on the EG Property po- Podcast is Lee Elliott, Global Head of Occupy Research at Knight Franks. We're here today to talk about um, what every real estate investor, agent, uh, anyone in the world of real estate really wants to know, which is what are occupiers thinking? More importantly, what are they doing, or what are they going to do? And you have um, recently published your um, your your space um, research, where you look at um, or talk to four hundred occupiers around the world to get their their views on on what's going on. You first did that report back in 2018 latest report as i say is just out and what a year to be asking those those Absolutely. questions um uh, so so give us a little overview of of what you found out from from this latest report what are global occupiers thinking
2: yeah so sam I, I mean i think the first thing to say is that we've all become accustomed over the last 12 months to read in a lot particularly in the mainstream press about you know what's likely to happen lots of proclamations of revolution etc Very little of that analysis has been grounded in the real world in terms of what business leaders and real estate uh, managers within business are thinking. So that was really the premise behind not just this report, but the 2018 report to actually get the voice of the customer uh, into play. I mean, I think real estate has gone through a customer centricity belatedly. And now, you know, ever more so, we're going to need to think about what the customers really thinking. So that was the premise. Um, And as you say, we've gone to 400 occupiers. Collectively, they employ about 10 million people around the world as a a conservative estimate. Um, So they're in control of a lot of real estate and potentially a lot of futures uh, for for real estate investors and the like. And, you know, we wanted to just try and get below the surface a little bit, get beyond the hyperbole and start to think about actually what's really going to happen. And I think, you know, what we've done with the research is try to create a framework of Uh, or a roadmap, they're pretty popular at the moment, right, roadmaps, but a a roadmap for the sorts of things that occupiers will be thinking about and how that will determine their real estate choices of the future. And what we've struck upon is four S's. So um, we fervently believe on the basis of the research findings that uh, best-in-class offices and and the occupier will gravitate towards best-in-class offices going forward. You know, the flight to quality that we've all been hearing about is – is very much here to st- here to stay. Um, yeah, best-in-class offices are going to be characterised by these four S's. The first is strategic. So, you know, I don't see many occupiers in the future taking real estate as a box to put people in, or uh, simply a factor of production, or even a cost to manage downwards. Although cost will be an issue. You know, real estate is going to be mobilised by occupiers to really make a difference to their business strategy, and particularly. The transformation strategies that I think most businesses will face up to in a post-COVID world, particularly things like digital transformation and resilience and all the all the things that we've become accustomed to over the last 12 months. So strategic, you know, and, and strategy is the first S. The second S is safety. Hmm. Um, you know, clearly the one thing I think COVID has absolutely done is exacerbated our sense of the need to be safe within the workplace. Um, And what we believe is that health and safety considerations will join a trend that was already in play, which is that of well-being, to really define uh, the best-in-class offices. So places that keep people safe and support their their well-being in in the broadest possible sense. Uh, The the third S is sustainability. You know, something I know you're particularly passionate about. as we all should be, given the impending sort of climate crisis and the role that real estate has to play in that, um, we have noted in our survey that there's a lot of move of, of occupiers, big businesses, towards net zero carbon. Uh, but what our research shows quite clearly is there's a sort of fundamental disconnect between corporate ambition hmm. around net zero and action, and um, particularly real estate action, and the the connections are not been fully explored or exploited, and I think they will need to be in short order. So that will point towards a gravitation towards more sustainable product, but also obviously a more sustainable um, running or operation of of offices longer term. Both of those things are going to be important. Uh, And then the final S is 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 smart you know and and the adoption of technology and particularly sensor technology and the data it generates to inform the real estate decision making process I mean I think there is a feeling probably quite accurate that a lot of uh, occupiers are acting on gut feel market opportunism or the wants of their c-suite leadership uh, and actually are not able to challenge that gut feel or are not able to provide an alternative because they've generally not had good data. The data they've generally had is how much money they spend on real estate. Uh, And I think the adoption of smart technology will support that decision-making process. But not only that, critically, I think what it will do is ensure that the workplace environment is better managed to support those sustainability issues. Um, And the workplace experience uh, is going to become better curated through data. And Let's make no bones about it. Workplace experience is where the future's at. You know, I think the notion of going to an office just to sit at a desk and administer email, which we've all been doing remotely for the last 12 months, uh, is a thing of the past. We're going to want to go to the office to engage, to collaborate, to socialise and to have fun. Uh, And we need a workplace experience that supports that. I think that might be one of the most significant changes that we're likely to see in the next cycle.
1: Does that mean there's actually five S's, so we should put social social down there as Good well? Good point. The
2: other... Yeah, I, I think that that's probably a, a, a fair comment. I'm sure there are other S's out there as well if we look hard <laughs> enough. But I, I mean, the point about so, socialisation, I think, you know, I, I think we've done a pretty bad job. The business leaders and the real estate industry have done a pretty bad job at sort of taking the fun out of the, out of the workplace. I mean, it's obviously a serious place as well, you know, it's where you get you are productive and I think generally it's acknowledged that where pe- most people are most productive, um, but it's also a place where collaboration is required and collaboration requires socialisation and along the way, a bit of fun as well. And I think we need to start talking that up. I think that is a inherent quality of the office is to bring people together to have a bit of fun, but also to get things done. And... Um, you know that's going to be a key function going forward and interestingly in in some of the survey questions that we asked we asked occupiers what their sort of top sort of strategic agenda items were that real estate would best support and and the number one finding was supporting corporate image brand and culture and you know ultimately what is a brand you know a brand is the 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 sum values i suppose of the people that are operating within the organization mm. that could be one definition so actually if you've got a, a space that supports those people to be yeah, uh, you know, I don't necessarily like these American terms, but you know, their better self or you know the, the words to that effect. Um, if you if you enable people to be themselves and actually bring their best self to work, then I think you in, in, embellish and, and galvanise that culture. And I think we need that. I mean, we've been in a place where we've been in sort of lockdown for a long time, or uh, it certainly feels longer than it's even been. And um, you know, we've all lost a sense of that connection and, and cultural identity that needs to come back.
1: Definitely, and and we've kind of been through, haven't we, a bit of a sort of 360 in terms of um, views of the office through lockdown. So lockdown one, it was you know it was very much oh the death of the office. We can all work from home, and no one no one wants to go there because it's so wonderful being at home. Then by the time lockdown three came, a lot of people that I spoke to said, oh this is the best thing that could have ever happened <laughs> to offices because suddenly we all got all got desperate to to go back and you know, that's us as individuals. And I wonder from, from the conversations you've been having with so many occupiers, whether they went through that same process too, or whether they're, you know, they think a bit more long term than we as individuals might.
2: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. So I, I think the first thing to say is uh, what I've been encouraged about in dealing with occupiers over the course of the last year is there aren't many that are knee-jerking. So my sense is that most occupiers recognize that they're in the middle of a great global workplace experiment. It's a term I use sort of right at the start, you know, March last year. Um, and, And a lot of people perceive that as being, you know, the workplace experiment was actually just that process of working remotely. I don't see it as that. I think we're actually into a second phase of the great global workplace experiment, which is reacquainting ourselves with the office and understanding through action what the office is really there for. And I think what's encouraging is a lot of occupiers have almost sat back and recognised the inevitable, which is lockdown and you know, building operational resilience through a period of lockdown uh, and not making too many choices and, and decisions about the office unless uh, breaks and expiries require them to do that. And generally then they bought time by re or or renewing over the short term. So you know the revolutionary tone that's been in again the mainstream press. I feel like I'm bashing the mainstream press a lot, but You, know, <laughs> you go ahead. <laughs> but in the mainstream press, you know, there's a lot of talk about you know revolution and occupiers are going to do this, that, and the other. And and actually, in 20 years of working with occupiers, the the one fundamental is they always need a break or expiry to drive action. And those breaks and expiries don't neatly align with a crisis, generally. So. You know, I think what we're likely to see and the tone that we've adopted within your space report is that you know, we're likely to see an increased sort of evolutionary cadence of how occupiers think about the office and therefore what the office becomes rather than sort of a cliff edge sort of revolutionary moment when we do a, an ab- about turn and, and, and go off in a completely different direction. I don't see that at all. Uh, you know, the four S's that I've outlined, they've all been around pre-COVID and they'll all be around once we've dealt with COVID. Um, and that's what's really going to drive strategy. COVID just sort of heightens the uh, the senses, I suppose, around what issues are important. Uh, and, and back to your point, you know, I think that reacquaintance with the office will give occupiers some real read on how people want to engage with the office, why, and therefore what the office needs to become in terms of its design, um, its experience, and, and the environment it presents.
1: And one of the one of the stats that um, everyone will love from from the report is, you know, there's a majority of the respondents who said they were either going to be increasing their office space or or stabilising it, which will be music to many people's ears, won't it? And, you know, it, it, does that figure sort of tally with previous reports or is that is that a increase, decrease or or, or
2: yeah, I mean, I think there's two there's two points there, Sam. The first one is that you know, our our research shows very clearly that you, you know there is a more nuanced picture around how occupiers are thinking about their portfolio than again some of the headlines of have you believe. You know, I've heard about HSBC the client you know reducing their footprint by forty percent, and somehow that's become a bit of a bellwether for everybody else and the sort of general tone in elements of the market has been, well, everybody's reducing space. Well, not true. I mean, 65% of the occupiers we surveyed on a global basis are either keeping their, or anticipate keeping their portfolio the same size or increasing it. Um, And and what that, those that are increasing are generally drawn from the sectors that, if you can have such a good thing, have had a good crisis. So, technology and life sciences, you know, 40% of the 30% that are increasing their footprint uh, are, are drawn from the tech sector And the 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 vast bulk of those are planning to increase their portfolio by more than 10%. So, there is this more nuanced picture around who's growing and who's expanding their their footprint. And, of course, there are those in sectors that perhaps have been challenged for a while now, such as retail banking, that are are needed to right-size. In in, in answer to the question about, well, how does that change over over time, undoubtedly, there is a, a reduced volume of our respondents that uh, are, are not expanding at, at the same rate. So, you know, from the top of my memory, it was around about 50 percent of our occupiers last time round that were planning to increase their footprint. It's now about 30. But the, back to the point about inertia, uh, the large majority are actually saying they're going to stay pretty stable. And that mm. suggests to me that they're they're taking their time. They're thinking, that we, you know, and they will, they will jump into one side or other of that dynamic longer term. But they're not going to rush there. Um, and, I, and I think that's actually encouraging for the market, because, as I said, I think the, at the moment, our lens or a filter, if you like, is all about COVID. And there are so many issues out there beyond COVID that are going to influence the way the occupier thinks about space. You know, think things like, again, I know that are dear to your heart, but, you know, diversity and inclusion. Um, and the broadening of the labor market, the role of technology in changing the labor market dynamic for good and for bad. Um, you know, all of these issues that we were talking about back in 2018 in the first edition of Your Space, they haven't gone away. They've just been put firmly on the back burner because of the eye of the storm that's COVID. And I think what we're likely to see as occupiers go through the next phase of the great global workplace experiment is that they're going to um, increasingly have these issues come back onto the table. Uh, and that will shape strategy
1: and so that sounds to me like there is a variety of opportunity there for for the real estate industry to to see to seize upon if it, you you know you talked about there being this disconnect between the corporate ambition on sustainability and their their real estate that to me sounds like you know ding 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 if I'm a real estate um provider if I'm offering up the right kit then you can you can help those corporates bring those two things together
2: absolutely you know if real estate's strategic which you know 90 percent of our survey respondents believe real estate's a strategic device for their business okay and that's actually up from 2018 it was 85 mm-hmm. percent back then so um, you know a, a relatively moderate change but a, a, a sample actually that's three times bigger than 2018. so um If real estate is strategic, I would argue that the real estate offering needs to be strategically aligned. Uh, And I argue this a lot with clients all the time, which is that, you know, we need to do a better job as an industry in selling to the customer. I talked about customer centricity at the start. We still product sell to the customer. Mm. And, you know, if you sell products, you get commoditized. It's all about price. But actually, if you sell a solution to a bigger problem, such as sustainability, not exclusively so, but that's you know a, a biggie. If you start to truly sell a solution to that problem, price generally falls away from the conversation. And uh, I think sustainability is the absolute dominant frontier around that. Um, we say within the Your Space report that this is, this is a moment of opportunity for education across the industry, and everybody's involved. It's not just an occupier problem. It's not just a landlord problem. It's not an advisor problem. It's everybody's problem. And actually, of course, it's everybody's problem because we've got 30 years to save the planet from catastrophe. Right. So why wouldn't it be everybody's problem? But, you know, that penny's only starting to drop now. Um, What I'm encouraged about is that 10 years ago, when we came out of the last sort of major global crisis, the GFC, you know, sustainability just got put on the Mm sidings. Well, we can't afford for that to happen this time. Because then we'll only have 20 years to save the planet. So at least we're getting the recognition that this is an issue that needs to be addressed. But what I think we absolutely need to do through this process of education is exchange best practice ideas, exchange the get beyond the marketing dynamic. You know, how many times you see, you know, I know it's an overused phrase, but greenwashing, you know, know, we've got an accreditation. Great. So if you're selling the solution to the occupier, what does that accreditation actually mean? Okay, they can tick a box, but what does it mean for the run costs of their building? What does it mean for their achievement of a net zero carbon target? If we can start to articulate that, then you're going to get a much better, I would argue, a much better and healthier relationship with your tenant as an hmm. as an investor. And that healthy relationship is probably going to, or most likely to be reflected in price and, and return and therefore yeah, investment value. Uh, and, and longevity of income but if you ignore all of that and you just keep sending product I, I think you're going to get less performing asset and you're actually going to put that income at risk.
1: It's interesting isn't it because I, I, I'm i having this conversation more and more about um, from moving away from product to solution we saw it you know when we were talking with WiredScore about their new smart smart score and that being you know it's not about the tech it's about what the what the tech enables and what the end user is getting out of it. And I get, you know, that's what if, you know, that's what occupiers want. They don't, of course, they care about the building because we all want to be in, in nice, nice buildings, but they want to know what that building delivers for them. So is it a, is it a question of, of the language that the real estate industry needs to use to better communicate with, with occupiers?
2: Well, listen. Yeah, I, I think language is part of it, but of course, just by changing language, you get accused of semantics, right? Yeah. <laughs> there has to be some some authenticity there. I was interested on a, on a, um, a commercial conversations a series that we host at night, Frank, with with Emily uh, Pridou from Derwent. and you know, Derwent are brilliant because they've been using the the word customer for you know at least ten years and, and longer, I'm sure, and and I think that's reflected in the product. That they develop and and you know the relationship they have with their customers and and their ability to sort of sustain those relationships so i think there could, the language we use is important but i think it's all about authenticity and i think about it's about recognizing it's very interesting like when we did the 2018 your space research and i started taking that on the road i had one slide at the very start of the presentation which was simply the words structural change hmm. in big bold you know 65 point, font, and so just put that in front of people and said, this is what we're going through. And we're still going through it. And we're going through it with an even more acute awareness now because of COVID. And an element of that structural change is we need to get beyond landlord and tenant towards customer and supplier. But we also need to get beyond recognising real estate as just a physical product. Mm. If, If you ask me what one of the most fundamental challenges for a landlord addressing a customer is going forward... What are you going to do, Mr. Landlord, to provide a compelling workplace experience? What services are you going to put into your lovely bricks and mortar? Because we all generate pretty good bricks and mortar, now, particularly in the context of the London market. You know, All the product that has been developed because of planning, regime, et cetera, is sustainable You know, to, yeah. to, to a, a, a great degree. So it's not actually about the bricks and mortar anymore. It's about the service that you provide. And therefore, it becomes about hospitality mindset, which is utterly custom-centric. And I, you know, I, I see. I mentioned Derwent. There are obviously lots of others in the in the marketplace that are on this uh, path. But are there enough? I'd question whether there are. You know, I, I still think there are many that see it as a bricks and mortar business, and I think it's way beyond that now. If you want to secure customers and have good engagement with them, and therefore longevity of income.
1: And and in terms of um, you know some of the some of those solutions, some of those um, elements that occupiers are asking for in their buildings, that, that that hospitality service that they want from from their real estate. What are you what are you finding finding there? Has that changed over the last year, two years?
2: I, I'm not sure it's changed over the last two years, but I think it will change quite markedly over the next five.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and the most obvious sort of uh, sort of manifestation of this is sort of building level amenity. Um, you know, what we've shown very clearly in your space is the expectation of employees from their employer about the amenities they provide in the workplace is becoming ever broader. As a case in point, you know, what, what I, I wrote an article in the 2018 survey which said it's great that we're seeing more amenities supporting people's physical well-being, you know, end-of-trip facilities, you know, all the stuff that's dirigir in the market now. But the next frontier has to be mental well-being. Mm. This is in 2018, and actually very few buildings were really uh, were being positioned as a solution to um, the, 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 ep- the epidemic that we're facing around mental well-being. You know, mental well-being, depression, anxiety in the workplace, they reckon, you know, the World Bank reckons cost the, the global economy about a trillion dollars a year in lost productivity. What business leader wouldn't want to address that? So therefore, real estate needs to address it. And very encouragingly, in this latest survey, facilities, amenities that support mental well-being is actually ranked fourth, having not appeared at all in 2018. So, you know, I think it's about amenity, but I think it's about a broad church of amenity. And when I say that to landlords, they always sort of, they recognise the point, but they say, well, we can't possibly provide all of that. And and I absolutely get that. And I think that's, that then lends, lends itself to a really interesting point about the future of cities or villages within cities. Because I think what will happen as a direct consequence of this broadening requirement for amenity is that landowners and and building owners will club together and work much more collaboratively and often with local authorities, whether it's directly or in the sort of context of business improvement districts, to to create a, a more compelling and cohesive amenity provision across a geographical area. You know the estates are kind of ahead on this because they control all that so you know you look at BL and British land and others you know they can do that because they've got estates and I think the states are going to have their moment again uh, 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 you know, perhaps ironically but it's about creating an amenity provision that supports a better richer workplace experience that gives people a reason to invest in their commute mm. in a world where they're going to have choice uh, and creating something that's really vibrant, and I think you know not only will building uh, occupiers and owners benefit from that, but so will sort of you know the City of London, the West End, and and any any anywhere in between or beyond.
1: Did you did you find in your discussions with occupiers anyone sort of talking about, you know, we've heard um, chats about what you know one of the greatest amenities now being um, big sky or you know having having outdoor space, fresh air. Um, You know, the fact that people haven't commuted for over a a year and might want to, you know, work near home, not not from home. Are those those, um, things that global occupiers are looking at, too, or do they do they believe in the future of of big cities of, you know, of of the, you know, the great commute into into London or Manchester or Birmingham or wherever it might be?
2: Yeah, I mean, interestingly, 20% of our global occupiers anticipate extending the amount of portfolio that they have within suburban locations, but only 20%. I wouldn't say that's significant, Um, although it's something we should be recognizing. And, you know, you can point to Standard Chartered in in Asia-Pac that have gone down that particular route and others in the UK market that are are well known. Um, I, I think there is a... There is a message here about cities. I think there is still a desire to to, to gravitate towards cities, but much like the office itself, the relationship with cities or the relationship with the office is going to be much more fluid and flexible. You know, it's not a five day a week experience. Uh, I, I, I dread to now use the word hybrid working because it's. Mm-hmm. In my view, it's going to become the co-working of, its, of, of this cycle because co-working lost all definitional distinction after about six months of use. I think we're going to go exactly the same way with hybrid. But, yeah, the notion of working much more flexibly uh, and, and potentially, you know, for some tasks, for some people, for some of the time, you know, uh, remote working will, will absolutely be part of the work in existence, but so too will the appeal of cities to come together, to collaborate, socialise, as we've already discussed, to ex- explore and enjoy the city you know I've actually missed I'm only 30 minutes outside of London I've enjoyed I've, I've missed going in you know um, not just for work but just for, for general sort of um, uh, activity so I, I don't think this is the death knell of the cities I and mean, in some cases you could argue that by uh, cities our relationship with cities becoming much more flexible and fluid the cities themselves might become more cohesive you know, when you think about London, London has an average commute time of about 75 minutes. Mm. Um, that's not sustainable on a five day a week basis. So actually, if people t- do start to put on the lever of remote working or working closer to home uh, with greater regularity, maybe the city itself becomes a little bit more manageable, a little bit more enjoyable, you know, a little less dense and a little less crowded. You know, maybe I'm a, a bit too utopian in that. I don't I don't know. But I, it's a, no, it's a nice agree. Call.
1: Yeah, I was in I was in town um, this week and usually when I commuted into work, walking across London Bridge in the morning was horrific. I hated it. it you know, whereas uh, yesterday, walking across that bridge and bridges in London are the, one of the best things about London. I think It was absolutely delightful. And, uh, you know, there were there were people around, which was great to see, but it wasn't shoulder to shoulder and you could breathe and, uh, you know, that i think you know the city doesn't have to be overflowing to be alive does it i think if, if there's a balance we can get then then perhaps you know that's the future
2: i think that's right and that absolutely comes back to what we were saying about the workplace it's about it's a rich experience it's not an experience that you want to shy away from or you can't wait to escape from it's something you want to embrace and and and, and be part of uh, and, you know, what? in many ways, you know, the, the narrative around the office over the last 12 months, whether it's the death of the office or the rebirth of the office, is exactly the same narrative that we're having around urban centers and cities um, because they're so heavily interlinked. So I think many of the features that we're likely to see playing out in the office environment are also true of, of, of urban centers as well. Um, notwithstanding, there are some other challenges around retail and leisure and all of those things. But um, I think it's about richness, richness of experience
1: and so so you've been you've been doing um this gig of uh, research for for some time too long yeah <laughs> <laughs> no such thing um, i guess it, you know we have seen um all sorts of um headlines across um across the nationals um you know we've probably run some too um about uh, you know so almost sensationalist headlines about the future of the office the future of of cities i guess i'd love to know from you just with a with um you know sort of a long term eye, do you think you know is this really um a turning point in in history or has this been coming for some time and will sort of slowly and gradually will trans transform um, but pretty much you know if we look back over a fifty year term not mu- maybe not that much has changed fundamentally I, I don't know not I'm not saying you've been doing it for fifty years by the way
2: well, it feels like it on, uh, on occasion, <laughs> I have to say, but uh, yeah, maybe edit that bit out. Um, th- th- no, I think um, in all seriousness, I think the COVID experience, as I as said a number of times, is an accelerant uh, of views and ideas that were already, we were already meandering towards at varying paces. I think what it's done is it crystallised thinking around and and questioning, and and fundamental question of what the office is there for, Uh, and from that comes action. But the action, this is the point I really struggle with, that the action does not occur in the next six months. It occurs because of those inbuilt breaks breaks and expiries which condition the way that occupiers behave. It's likely to play out over a 10-year period, and over that 10-year period, of course, there will be other headwinds. Uh, And as I referred to earlier, there will be other issues that start to re-emerge that will be equally as important. It's very interesting. If you look at the influence of COVID on occupier decision making, if we isolate the findings from just our Asian headquartered occupiers, they have a very different perspective on how significant COVID is in their long term decision making. So I think from memory, 12% of uh, Asian occupiers believe that COVID will change their real estate strategy forever, whereas on the global figures, it's 27%. Mm. And equally, uh, I think 25% of our global respondents believe that COVID had no lasting impact on their real estate strategy. In Asia, it's 35%. Now, I appreciate fully that we're now in a slightly different spot in terms of where Asia is in its COVID experience because of the unfortunate scenes we're seeing in in India. But at the point when we surveyed, which was sort of Christmas through February, you could argue that Asia had got into the crisis earlier and out the other side quicker and more efficiently. And that would have conditioned the responses that we got. And I think it's therefore very interesting that occupiers uh, in that part of the world have tended to see COVID as one of, of many influences rather than the only influence. And I think what that means is that our tone about the future, will become much more balanced and much more diverse. So what what I've seen over the last year is a it's significant pendulum swings to the extreme. You know, you referenced it earlier. The the home working piece back in March. You know, of last year, the sun was shining, the birds were singing, everybody was loving home working. You know, roll the clock forward nine months to the autumn, the late autumn. It was dark, it was dank, it was wet, it was miserable. We've been in the studies for, you know, the best part of nine months at the top of the house, as I am here. And, you know, suddenly it wasn't such a great experience and people were questioning whether it's productive. The pendulum had swung. I think, you know, you know, look when we look back over this period, what will happen is the pendulum will certainly have sw- has, has shifted from its position pre-COVID, but not anywhere near the magnitude that some would have you believe. Creeping evolution, I think, is where we're, where we're heading. But with a little bit more pace.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting what you're saying about the difference in viewpoint from from Asia and 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 here, perhaps. And I wondered if that is because, you know, here in the UK, perhaps in the States as well, we've been protected um, for a long time. We've never really seen any. You know we haven't seen famine, we haven't seen um disease uh, you know the the worst we've probably had in the u k is the foot sort and of mouth, isn't it? and yeah. and I wonder if we've become a bit complacent uh, about you know the the big global issues that are facing the the planet and so you know maybe there was a little bit more knee knee jerk um, among those um parts of the the globe that thought they were sort of sitting sitting pretty i I guess.
2: Well, I guess one of the things with Asia is it's had some experience of these sorts of viral infections. You know, with SARS, the SARS experience, and many people point towards SARS and, and that episode as being why you know Singapore and China and, and that part of the world has has responded as efficiently as it appears to have done through this crisis. So I, I think the muscle memory, if you like, that those those countries are working with is is helpful, and, I, and we don't have that typically within the West. I'd also say that, you know, well, this is one observation I have of the whole debate over the last 12 to 18 months. It's very Western-led debate. You know, all the commentators are from the UK or from America, uh, and that must colour the debate. So, I, I think, you know, what we've tried to do with your space, and given the sort of breadth of occupiers that we've surveyed, is to, is to put a, a truly global perspective into play. Uh, and you do get Uh, clear differences between, you in different parts of the world, partly because of the experiences that they've had in the near term, but also perhaps because of some of the cultural constraints, you know, an obvious point about Asia is the, you know, the remote working piece was not able to be sustained as long, even if people had a desire, because generally if you go to Hong Kong, Singapore, people's private dwellings don't sort of necessitate, uh, don't enable that, you know, Mm -hmm. you're, you're living in really tight, confined spaces. Um, uh, Equally, you know, there's a different geopolitics working. You know, one of the things that we found in the survey is, and this surprised me a little bit, was that four in 10 of our global occupiers that we surveyed anticipate or or feel that will be very likely, fairly likely or definite that they will relocate their headquarters within the next three to five years. Essentially, the the HQ building is up for grabs. It's Hmm. potentially functionally obsolete. If you go to Asia, that's seven out of ten and um, and part of that is because a lot of the companies that we uh, spoke to were chinese um, you know and and, and probably from the, in terms of their global aspirations their springboard into the global market is probably not mainland china it's probably singapore which will drive that hq relocation piece so there's some really interesting nuances and and this is the point i've been trying to make in, with clients particularly over the last couple of months is you know, yes, there are headlines out there, but you have to dig below them and you have to look at the nuance and there is ever more greater nuance and, and, and variety in how occupiers are responding. Um, you know, it used to be thought that there was sort of only a couple of sort of playbooks for, for real estate. I, I don't argue that any longer. I think, uh, you yeah, there's a there's a multiple of playbooks dependent on corporate culture, corporate legacy attitudes of staff, demographic I was never a I was never a subscriber to the thoughts of, you know, how how significant the thoughts of millennials were. Partly because I wasn't I didn't classify as one, I'm sure. But yeah, the, the reality is that yeah, you know, what COVID has done and their COVID experience has done has made that demographic piece really quite acute. You yeah. know, I talk to senior partners of law firms, they're finding that they their younger people are not necessarily in private dwellings that are suitable and productive. But not only that, they're missing out on valuable tacit learning by not being in the office. And therefore, the next generation of lawyers, for example, um, are not not getting the skills and the development opportunities that their their, their colleagues, their older colleagues have had. That's a massive issue. Mm. Um, So, yeah, there's a lot of dynamics here. And I think, yeah, we we've been saying that it's not one fits one size fits all response to this situation or indeed any other. The workplace will become more varied. And you know, pulling that back full circle, that's why landlords need to do a lot more work, in my view, in understanding who's the other side of the table. Yeah, you know, who is the occupier? What is their business going through? What are their dynamics? What is their culture? Now, how many how many landlords actually? do that to that level of due diligence you know they're looking at covenant strength yeah absolutely and mm. financials but are they getting under the bonnet are they really understanding the the the, the organization they're trying to secure for their building
1: mm, the organization and its people
2: I, I absolutely suppose. absolutely yeah.
1: so we'll we'll put a link to the to the um report in in the podcast because I think there's so much there for for Brilliant. everyone to Thank take you. take away from that but um if you were to give one piece of advice to I guess to you know to the investor developer market um, as a result of what you've learned, what w- what would that be?
2: My fundamental piece of advice is, you know, work harder to understand the occupier, and go go below the generic headlines to actually truly understand the nuance, because the nuance is where the value is, um, and and that's where the depth of of, of customer interaction will come from. Um, you know, I think we're way beyond product, we're into solution, as we've said, um, we're, we're way beyond provision of environment, we need to be thinking about the provision of experience, and to do that you absolutely need to understand your, your occupier, your customer, uh, with a greater um, depth uh, and, 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 and almost a greater regularity one of the, perhaps the last point, I know I can go long on these things, so I'll stop. But yeah, one of the things that I would say is encouraging of the COVID experience is 60% of our occupiers have said that they've had a greater engagement with their landlords, Hmm. albeit from a place of crisis and crisis mitigation. But what a great opportunity. If 60% of of occupiers feel they've got more engagement with their landlord, and if the landlord can truly understand the person on the other side of the table and their frustrations with them, That's a brilliant place on which to build something I've been reading about for the last 20 years, which is a greater degree of partnership between supplier and customer. Well, maybe we have the opportunity to present that. And if we do, what a great silver lining for a pretty horrid sort of last 12 months.
1: I think that's that's brilliant and really encouraging to hear because, you know, on the on the flip side of that, in in terms of the the retail retail landlord relationship, that appears to have gone a little bit the other way. So hopefully that will that will come full circle and. Uh, I love um, the nuances where the where the value is. I think that's a, a really great great piece of advice. Lee, thanks ever so much for that really fascinating um, insights into into what the occupiers are, are thinking. Uh, and uh, yeah, people do go and check out the report because you will find all sorts of nuggets of advice and intelligence in there. So Lee, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of the EG Property Podcast. We hope you found the content insightful and helpful. If you'd like more of the same and to keep up with all the latest news, views, analysis and research that the EG Group has to provide, be sure to sign up to all of our property podcasts and subscribe to Radius Data Exchange for unlimited access to all of our content and comprehensive commercial real estate data.